and welcome to another episode of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon, chartered psychologist and coach, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pilar Orti. Pilar, how are you doing? I am very well, and I have to say I'm really looking forward to this episode. Really am. Oh, that's intriguing. <laughs> yes. That's intriguing. Well, I've got a couple of points of news to share, and then we'll dive into the meat of it because I'm—I'd like to know why you're interested in this. Um, <laughs> but anyway, let, let's uh, let's do the news bit first. Um, just a reminder that this month's online community meetup is all about how to cultivate new habits. Um, so. For those of you that have never heard of this before, we've got a monthly online meetup as part of our Work Life, work life Psych Club, and um, they're free to attend, and it's a sort of a drop-in online to have a chat about a topic. And now this cultivation of new habits, I think, is almost building blocks of doing new things, of making changes, or even of building skills. If we start with tiny habits that get us a good result over time, it can be really good for our confidence. It can be really non-disruptive to our routines, but there are some specific ways to do that. So I want to talk about that. And then next month, well, we're already into December then. So we're going to start mm -hmm. on getting ready for 2024. So I want to help people avoid the situation of getting to the 1st of January and going, hmm, what will I do differently this year? And make a decision under pressure and fall into the trap of creating some kind of vague New Year's resolution. But instead, start thinking about it in December. Maybe it is about continuing that theme of some habits you want to cultivate. Maybe it's some goals you want to reach. Maybe it's some other kinds of changes or a theme you want to adopt for the year. But if you have those few weeks in the bank, it means you can start January being clear on that stuff, feeling a little confident and maybe less likely to fall prey to social pressure when other people say they're doing things. You can stick to your guns and continue with your focus. And a reminder, a general reminder, the latest edition of our new uh, newsletter is out and you can find that uh, if you would like to just read it or subscribe to it on an ongoing basis, you can find it at worklifepsych.news. Uh, that is all of the news. So let's get into our uh, topic for today. Let me set the scene. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was running a productivity workshop and had spent sort of a half day with this group. And we got to the end. And as usual, as I ask you every time, have you got any questions? Um, I asked the group, are there any final questions, anything you'd like me to clarify? And one person put up their hand and asked me, do you practice what you preach? <laughs> Doing <laughs> <laughs> that was mentally what happened. So that's a big <laughs> question. And the more I think about it, the more I've reflected on it, I thought it'd be useful to explore because of the nature of what I do, what other psychologists and coaches do, but also people who train, people who develop others in the workplace, like team leaders and managers. I think this is a really, really relevant question to ask. But before we go any further, why does it intrigue you? Why were you looking forward to it this time around? Well, one, because I can't wait to see what you bring to it from your point of view. I'm very curious <laughs> to know how much you practice what you preach. Although, of course, I'm doing, doing this uh, podcast with you, I know, I know more or less. But I do think that when, from the point of view of the coachee or from the point of view of the person who's being trained, I think. For me, there's always a curiosity 
about what the person who is guiding us uh, does. And a, a long time ago, I went through, you could call it an advisory program, coaching program. And I was working with someone who wasn't a coach, but they w- were in that function. They were helping me to sort out mm. some business issues. And I was so curious about their own practice, their own professional practice. And even at one point, uh, he mentioned that he was also being a mentor for a young person and stuff. And I was, so I think it's a very interesting question from both points of view. I I have to agree. Um, I felt a little bit put on the spot, but I thought I should be able to answer this question. Now, I'll share my answer and then maybe we can go a little bit deeper. Um, Whenever I, I get asked about do you do that? Or is that your preference? Or what tool do you use? These kinds of common questions in coaching or training context. The first thing I'll say is I'm not the benchmark here. Okay, so neither am I holding myself up as a paragon of virtue, or in many cases, am I um, the lowest common denominator? <laughs> am I, you know, just do this and you'll survive? It, it's all about the individual. Now, there is a second element which is about authenticity. If I have been um, sharing the benefits of an approach, let's say, well, we talked about uh, prioritization that day. So if I've been talking about the benefits of prioritization, and if people have been experiencing practically how they might distinguish between importance and urgency and how it brings clarity to their task list that they've literally just wrote for themselves, And if I get asked, do you practice what you preach? It can, to satisfy someone's interest, um, help all of us if I answer, yeah, that's a thing I do. I do it slightly differently, but I do do it, and I notice the same benefits. But that is not the same as saying, because I do it, you must do it this way. Mm. And I suppose this pulls at the first thread, which is about being an evidence-based practitioner you're able to point to what science tells us about all of these different things rather than just your personal preference or just received wisdom or that horrible phrase, best practice, which is just common practice. So that that's one thing to separate the self from the evidence. And if you do that, then you can talk about, well, this is how I do it, but you know, it's not an instruction for you to do it that way. Or even, no, I don't do that because reasons one, two, and three. But again, it's just to scratch the itch of someone being curious rather than, so therefore I will do it or will not do it based on what you've had to say. So that's where, I, that's as far as I got on the day. What do you think? Yeah. And, and probably the person asking, well, I don't know, I'm making it up, but sometimes the person asking just is satisfying their curiosity. But I think it's, it's important that you make clear that this is not the benchmark, like you said, because there might be other people who haven't asked the question, but that are uh, listening to it in a different way. So yeah, Mm -hmm. that's really interesting. It it does need that clarification, Mm -hmm. I think, because it is very easy for us. I mean, whenever I'm doing coaching skills training, I point out to uh, delegates that giving the answer to something or sharing your view on something comes very naturally to us, but it's directive. And when we're coaching, we're trying to be non-directive. And providing a solution is easy and short-term, but it doesn't help the other person as much as exploring their needs and what a good solution for them might look like. So using yourself 
has to be done with intention. And that's probably a really important point here, this notion of use of self. When you're coaching or training, you it's when you decide to use your own lived experience as part of the process. Now, there's different ways that we can do this. If we're going to use it, if we're going to do it helpfully, the first thing is we need to do that intentionally. We've got a reason for doing it. When it's automatic, when we're just sharing stories from our lives, uh, we might unintentionally be raising the bar or making it seem like what we've done is the must do or is the only way of doing it and really dent someone's confidence or narrow their, their way of looking at a topic or put them under pressure that, oh no, I could never do that. So therefore, I, I might give up or I might start to be anxious about how I'm going to do it. If we're intentional about use of self, then we know what we're trying to achieve. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. And if you, and, and this is for listeners as well, if you start to notice in conversations you have with people, um, professional conversations and personal conversations, how often people bring their um, use of self into conversations, because this is something that we do very naturally. We do this sharing uh, to deepen the conversation and to build trust with other people. Um, this reciprocal sharing of our own experiences. So because that's natural and because it's common and because it can feel good, we, we need to be sure that we're doing it for the right reason and not just because it feels good or it's easier to give an answer than to explore the question. So in general, it can be really helpful in a coaching context, and I do this frequently, to normalize a shared human experience. So in other words, if there's something that comes up in our conversation and it's starting to feel like a bit of a blocker for the coachee, then I might use my own experience to illustrate this is something that lots of people experience. So for example, feeling nervous before an important event. That's pretty much almost a universal experience. Now, the level of nerves or anxiety will differ, of course, but it's something that many people can identify with. However, if that's a real issue for you, you might begin to think you're the only person who feels like this. So sharing that experience can help to normalize it and say it's something that many people experience. Now let's focus on what you can do to deal with that more effectively. So that's the normalization route. Does that, um, does that example um, illustrate that okay? Yes, and what I was thinking was that in this case, I mean, you, you did say it's about sharing, uh, normalizing the shared human experience. In that case, you're almost speaking to the other person about your experience from a human being's point of view, not necessarily the coach. So I can, exactly. I can see that how, how yeah. And, and the alternative would be if I was less intentional, I might say, um, oh, I was nervous the first time I did it, but, but then I just read yes. this book and it helped mm. me and there you go. Now I'm being very directive and I'm also suggesting that all you need to do is read the book and your nerves are gone forever. And so of course that's not putting the coachee at the center of things. And the same applies to a training environment. It's about the delegates putting them at the center. And so, um, you know, that does mean coming full circle back to authenticity. That does mean that on some courses, I might bring 
a topic to the table that we're, we're covering off. We might talk about some skills and it might be something that I'm still working on myself as a human being. It's a skill I'm working to develop and I find it very difficult. And so it, w- it would not be helpful for me to pretend that this was something I found easy because that's not authentic. But it also wouldn't be that helpful to, to talk about my own personal challenges with it because they're not that relevant in this training course. It's about ensuring that the delegates understand, get to practice and leave understanding how to continue that practice um, long after I've gone. It's really unhelpful to use this use of self um, if you are coming across as the benchmark or some kind of exemplar of behavior. And, and I think that's the risk when use of self, and it won't be termed that, um, but when that happens in, say, a mentoring um, relationship or even a buddying relationship when someone's new to a team or an organization, we can unintentionally play down the challenges someone might feel at this point in their career. And that could exacerbate their negative thoughts and feelings about it. Then they might feel even more self-tired because they say, well, she got over this in just a week and I'm six weeks in and I'm still, I still don't know everyone's name, you know, something like that. And we don't want to put pressure on them and start them going down this route of comparing themselves to each person they meet in terms of, this is where I am, where are they, how long have they been here, or what are their skills like, instead of the useful comparison, which is, where am I on my journey of skill acquisition or confidence building or relationship management, whatever whatever that is. And so um, they might unintentionally start going back to the other person's reference point and shut down other options. You know, we might end up in this position that unintentionally the coach or the trainer or the manager has left this person with the inference that their choice, the coach's choice, the manager's choice is the choice. And that's the way to do it or overcome it or learn from it. And, you know, that's, that's not helpful when it comes to human learning, growth, mm. uh, potential and all of that. Now, there's another, <laughs> there's another aspect to this, which is about um, being an expert on the topics that you work on with your clients, and in particular with, with coaches. Uh, coaches. Um, this is super relevant. So sometimes when someone's looking for a coach um, or an HR professional approaches us and is looking for a coach for one of their leaders, um, they'll say, well, we need someone with experience in financial services. And I will always ask why. And sometimes that's about comfort. The coachee wants someone to be familiar with the context that they're working in. Sometimes they'll want someone who has worked, not only coached, but worked in that sector or that industry, or even looking for someone who used to do a similar role. Now, I push back against that for the similar reason um, that my lived experience isn't as relevant as the coachee's context and where they want to get to. And so there can be lots of benefits to me not knowing a whole lot about their context. It's highly unlikely that I'll um, uh, have assumptions or we'll have shared assumptions. I'll have a vacuum of knowledge and I'll need some answers. And so I'll be asking more questions about their role 
their responsibilities, the culture where they work. If we have too much professional overlap, we will potentially collude and we will fall back on unhelpful shared assumptions about what's possible or what might happen. And so it doesn't mean that I have to experience what you're experiencing in order to be an effective coach. I think that is what that bit boils down to. I don't have to have worked in financial services to be an effective coach. I don't have to have sat on the board to coach someone who wants to get on a board, or I don't necessarily have to have grappled with anxiety about public speaking to effectively coach someone who is experiencing that at the moment. And that can be difficult for people to get their head around for for a few important reasons. But would you agree that someone's looking for something there and they don't necessarily need that in coaching? Yes. And I wonder whether some of that assumption that it's better if their coach has experience in that context or that they've gone through a similar experience. I wonder whether that comes from the the um, perceived similarity between coaches and mentors as mm-hmm. well, or mm-hmm. advisors. I think we've got lots of episodes uh, looking at this uh, coaching versus something else. And I wonder sometimes whether there's still this guidance, mentor-like <laughs> experience that sometimes um, people or organizations are looking for from coaches, which is slightly, as you say, maybe not what you'd expect from a, from a coach. Exactly. I see a lot of it, once we've spoken about it, it, it has come from the expectation that this person, this coach is going to tell me what to do. Therefore, they need to be really good at this if they're going to give me advice. And then we have to clarify, it's not about advice giving and it's not about making decisions for you, um, but it is about being an effective, objective question poser um, and someone that can hold you accountable uh, for the action that you commit to take. And so clarifying the role is really, really important and underlining the benefits of being slightly naive to a context and asking questions that maybe the person hasn't asked themselves about job-related factors that they've never questioned because it's very easy to get in a fixed mindset about what the future might look like. And one thing that coaching can be very good for is about shaking that up a little bit and exploring lots of different options, lots of different ways forward. So our our lived experience, our professional experience doesn't have to overlap in any way, really. Um, And as you say, in part, that's because someone's expecting to be told what to do. There there is another bit here, which is about, um, you know, do I need to be good at the things that I'm coaching someone on? And, and I think, you know, if, if we come back to putting the coachee at the center of it, it may well be um, that I can learn from my coachee. I have had that example over the years several times where someone is, you know, dealing with an issue in their professional life. And it's something that I would like some answers to as well. And that the way they think about it and the way they answer my questions has really illuminated it for me. And I don't think it would have been that way if I had gone in super confident about this. And it was something that I thought was particularly easy for someone to to overcome. But it also um, points to the fact that, you know, what I think about the topic what I believe about the person isn't that relevant at all. We don't have to have a shared worldview. Um, what you want is what you want. And for my part, as long as it's uh, legal and it's not going to harm someone else, then my job is to help you 
get to where you want to be. I don't have to be um, in full agreement with what your your life choices are because I'm not your parent, I'm not your boss, and I'm not your friend. It's a very, very different relationship. What What do you think about not needing to get the full agreement with what someone's planning to do? Well, I think completely because that's it's you're trying to get them to, in a way, design their future, <laughs> to put it very broadly. That's a great way of putting it, yeah. However, my question is a slightly different one. Uh, and uh, it, it's about, I think it's so interesting what you said about sometimes actually because you're not an expert or whatever in what the coachee wants to achieve that you've learned from them. Have you told them in those cases? In some I have. And in some, there didn't seem like the right moment in the conversation. It was going to break our mm -hmm. rapport. Yeah. Uh, but in some, I have. And I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in in giving feedback in the moment about um, what I'm thinking about where the conversation is going and someone's answers and someone's focus. So I think my clients are used to me talking about our conversation as we're going through it. But I think. Anyone could get this really if you practice the skills that coaches are supposed to practice, which is trying to be objective, trying to focus on the other person, listening to understand their perspective, and you know, just bringing all of your focus to them. If we did that in our non-coaching conversations, we could probably learn a ton from the people around us, but we don't tend to do that. Mm. We've got busy minds, we're focusing on multiple things at the same time, and we're waiting for the other person to stop speaking so we can have a go. So I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about me in this regard. I think it's more a case of if you really are listening carefully and the topic is relevant to you, you could learn from that. And and I will admit, and I've, I've put my hand up to this before, that the, I have had in the past situations where someone says, I want to come and have a coaching session about X. And in my mind, I think, okay, well, I... I based on what they've told me and everything, I, I can see how this is going to play out. And of course it doesn't. It goes in a completely different direction. And that is the other risk, which is, you know, I'm, I'm so familiar with this. I've seen it all before. I've seen it play out. Nope, you haven't. This is a unique individual with a unique life. And so you still need to listen, pay attention, put them at the center of everything and um, put their needs their goals, their ambitions as the direction of travel for them rather than what sits well with you or, or even what you understand. Um, because, it, you know, there's lots of things that don't resonate with me as a human being. I don't see them as being necessary or exciting or even desirable. And yet so many of my coaches want those things, uh, want to work towards them. And that's fine. Um, as long as they authentically want it. And as I said, as long as it's legal, I, my job is to, to help support them. I don't think it's helpful. And I had a conversation with another coach about this the other week. I, I think there is an overlap here with just being professional. So uh, the example um, I shared uh, with my colleague was, look, if I'm running um, a training session on time management and I turn up late, <laughs> <laughs> what does that say? You know, it's not that I'm no good at time management. It's possibly saying I, I maybe hadn't thought everything through and I wasn't meeting the needs of my clients. And, you know, this is professionalism, delivering a good service, um, being reliable and meeting, um, fulfilling the promises you've made. 
it doesn't mean that I'm no longer someone who can um, train people in this method. It definitely means I've put a dent in credibility with everyone in the room or everyone on the call by doing that. So rather than you have to be all things to all people, I think given the context you're in, you have to be sensitive to that and um, at least not work in the opposite direction of that. Um, you know, I, I, in, in a very lighthearted way with a colleague, I said, it's a bit like someone on TV trying to sell you a weight loss magic pill, but they themselves do not look like they've ever taken or benefited from this weight loss magic pill. It would make you wonder, well, if it works, why isn't it working for them? And, and that's one of the questions that gets posed to trainers and coaches all the time. If this is so good, do you do it? Does it work for you? And I think that's natural for people to ask that. It's just not always helpful to share the very super honest answer as you would with a colleague or a friend, because it can just put a dent in what you're trying to achieve with that person. And of course, if you do offer yourself up as an example, you then have to live up to that example forever, you know, and that's a lot of pressure. So um, being authentic, I think in, in part as a coaching psychologist, if you're really authentic, it means you don't have to remember what you said because you, you know you said something authentic um, rather than, well, I you know, told that person I was an expert in this. and I told that person that that never bothered me. Well, no, I just said what was authentically um, correct. So, you know, this is a, a, a tricky one because I, I would love to hear from listeners with their own examples where this has been helpful or unhelpful because if there's one complaint I've had from coaches about their previous coaching experience with other people, it has been that too much of the airtime was taken up by the coach talking about what they thought about the topic. Um, which you could see just gets in the way of moving forward on things because, okay, Mr. Coach, I don't really care what you think about this. I would like to focus on where I want to get to or your experience is many years out of date or it's not shared, you know. So there's, there's two sides to that. One, I'm curious about you as a human, but there's a limit to it as well. Let's get back to me. So um, when working with a coach, don't expect that they will divulge too much of their personal thoughts on something if it's not going to be helpful. But if they do share, if they do intentionally use their own perspective, um, if it's being done well, it's to help just put something to bed as being, this is part of being human. I'll give you a really good example from that same workshop um, that, that the big P came up, procrastination. Um, and I was very open that this is part of being a human at a micro scale or a big chronic problematic scale. And of course I was asked, well, if you know how to minimize procrastination, do you ever procrastinate? I went, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, not all the time about everything. And I'm working hard on certain things that I think twice about doing, but I, what I have are the tools in the toolkit to help me work on that rather than just letting it be and causing me problems in the future. So uh, I don't know, as ever, if I've muddied the waters here or if I've brought a little bit more clarity to it, but because it didn't stump me, but it stopped me in my tracks on the day, I thought, let's have a chat about what it is like to be a coach, whether you practice what you preach. And 
by the way, I hope I don't preach anything. Um, <laughs> I really don't like that word, but it's a saying we have in English. Um, and, you know, being intentional about how much of yourself you share with people, because like it or not, um, you're influential in that position. You can leave people with a very strong view, rightly or wrongly. Pilar, any final thoughts on this before we wrap up for today? Yeah, to answer your question, I think it is. it was very clear and what came out very strongly for me was the very deliberate nature of the answer to that question as well, and also of the, the very deliberate nature of the use of self. Uh, and I think, Richard, that this, even, even this conversation, even this is really interesting from a coach's point of view, just to get a little bit, if you're curious like me, and if you are interested, <laughs> is useful just to get a little bit more into the mind of the coach. And so, yeah, so thank you for that. No problem. It, it's something I've discussed quite a few times with different colleagues, and I get the sense that use of self is a lot more common among practitioners uh, who use acceptance and commitment theory or acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, ACT. Uh, it's part of the ethos that sharing your perspective is about normalizing it. And, and sometimes I think that's easier uh, than others. And there are schools of thought that say don't, but I, I think it's impossible to be a completely blank slate. To be honest, you're a human. You bring your humanity with you to these, to these contexts. Listeners, I'd love to hear what you think. Has this worked for you? Has it been a distraction? Have you got follow up questions? You can send us an email, podcast at worklifepsych.com or find us on the socials and uh, contact us then. We love to hear from you. Um, it's lovely to get the feedback. Um, and thank you, Pilar, for your points and questions today. I hope I satisfied your curiosity about this topic. Yeah, well, I still want to ask you more questions, but maybe not behind the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm intrigued. Well, thank you very much, Pilar, and uh, everyone out there. Thank you for listening. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.